listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so thrilled to welcome Tracy Swinton Bailey to read from her new book, Forever Free, A True Story of Hope in the Fight for Child Literacy. And after that, she'll be joining me in conversation. Before I introduce her, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing, and you can always shop online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Tracy Swinton Bailey earned a PhD in education with a specialization in language and literacy at the University of South Carolina in 2013. She began her career as a high school English instructor and went to found the Freedom Readers, an after school and summer literacy program that was designed and implemented to support families in low income areas and assist children in achieving their academic goals in reading. She is married to award winning writer Isaac J. Bailey and is the mother of two children. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the invitation, Natalie. I'm excited. I am too. I'm so excited to talk to you about books and literacy today and all of the amazing work you're doing. Did you want to start by reading a little something for us from the book? Absolutely. That'll be my pleasure. When it comes to reforming our education system so that it adequately meets the needs of children who have historically underachieved, Nothing is more significant than the power of the collective. That power can take a small effort and magnify it to such a degree that it begins to take on a life and an energy of its own. Picture in your mind a spider. As I write this, spring is unfolding outside my window with its longer days and brilliant sunrises. In the part of the country where I live, we see spiders quite often this time of year, spinning their webs, catching their prey, laying their eggs. Imagine walking along outside and inadvertently walking into the thread of a spider web. You can't see it, but there's no doubt that you have encountered it. Normally, we just wipe it away and don't give it much more thought. But let's dwell here a moment. Imagine the same scenario, but add a hundred spider webs, a thousand, a million. Our reaction would be quite different. In fact, I would argue that even the strongest person reading this would be stopped in her tracks. What I have just described is the core of an old Ethiopian proverb. When spider webs unite, they can tie up a lion. Think about it. One of the fiercest animals alive, commonly known as the king of the jungle, can be completely immobilized by something as fragile and as seemingly innocuous as a spider web, but not just any spider web, spider webs united. 
This is the principle that we often fail to activate when it comes to educating the youth of our nation. Somehow, we keep missing opportunities to form collectives, to collaborate in ways that can support children who are facing challenging situations. We recognize that solutions exist, but we miss the mark when we fall under the spell of the idea that we can do it alone. Problems as long-standing and pervasive as the ones we see in America's schools need to be addressed with the most innovative ideas, inexhaustible energy, and boundless hope. It is when we stay trapped in the same cycles with the same programs expecting different results that we find ourselves repeating history. Fortunately, when we survey the country's educational landscape, we find many examples of collectives and collaborations that have worked. Take for instance, the I Promise School, which was started in 2008 by the LeBron James Family Foundation. In this instance, you have a celebrity, arguably the best basketball player in the history of the game, who simply recognized the need to give back to the community where he grew up, Akron, Ohio. He considered his own story, the 83 days he missed from school during his fourth grade year, the disappointment and defeat in the eyes of his teachers when he was growing up, and decided that he would use his resources to create something beautiful for kids who find themselves in similar situations. The foundation started with community work, offering full college scholarships to students who met certain criteria, but quickly realized that it needed to do more if it wanted to make a significant impact. This is where the opportunity to combine threads of the spider web developed. James reached out to his hometown school district and was granted use of an old building, which he refurbished and reopened within a matter of weeks. The I Promise School, which opened in 2018, operates as a public school under the auspices of the district. However, in addition to the $2 million the district contributes toward the school's budget, James kicks in an additional 600,000 to fund extra teaching positions, after school activities and tutors. The increased funding allows the school to keep the student to teacher ratio lower than other schools. There's also a laser-like focus on the parents and caregivers who send their students to I Promise. They are invited to come to the building during the school day to work on their GED or pick up food from the school's pantry. Results are still preliminary, but the reading and math scores of the third and fourth graders enrolled at the school showed a significant increase according to a 2019 New York Times article about the school. Since kids were targeted for participation because their test scores were at the absolute bottom of the scale, this step forward is cause for celebration. It's a sign that relationships are being built, confidence is being gained, and the community is brought, bought into the possibility of change that this experiment can birth. This is what we need more of in this nation. We need smart, dedicated, strategic people with access to resources to inject innovation into schools that could do a better job of educating the most vulnerable citizens in our society. Egos have to be swept aside and room has to be made for the best ideas. LeBron James came to the negotiating table with a famous name, a track record in the community, and the money to put ideas about improving education into practice. These factors paved the way for district officials 
to trust this foundation enough to enter into a partnership that is now benefiting the entire community. Other celebrities, seeing the obstacles faced by children living in low-income communities, have used their fame as leverage to create equally compelling platforms for change. Let me be clear, I am not advocating that we swing wide the doors of the education system and invite every person with an idea to sit at the table and make decisions for millions of students. People who have no experience working with children or who have spent little time attempting to understand the art and science of teaching are the least qualified to lead schools. Some have argued that running a school system is no different than running a successful corporation. Set goals, work toward them, evaluate employees, measure progress. What gets left behind in this capitalist approach to education is the importance of building strong relationships, celebrating the strengths of children who have been historically disadvantaged and communicating to families that they are valued. Many of the powerful elements of the Negro schools that existed before integration fall by the wayside when we think of educating our kids as just another business. When political and economic forces become more important than inspiration and creativity, we have lost our way. The kind of collaboration I'm suggesting leaves the important decisions about progress and how to make things better for kids who struggle in the hands of educators who have a sense of what works. The partnership between Akron School District and the LeBron James Family Foundation is a good example of how a citizen can call attention to a problem and work with the system to create a new solution. I'm so glad that you chose uh, that part of the book to read because it, it will start me off with the main thread that I felt like carried through this whole story, which is sort of your story, but also a, a story about attempting to bring more literacy and more attention to the issue of child literacy in mostly your town and trying to bring it to a greater audience as well, which was an idea of radical care versus mm -hmm. charity. Right. Um, and so the idea of radical care, you brought up something that Brian Stevenson said, which was the idea that all of us have a, a sense of brokenness in us. We've all been hurt. We have all hurt people, but that one that one thing that we all share isn't what connects us. It is just something that we have in common and some common ground that we need to recognize in each other. So I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about the idea of charity, which you mentioned charity in America versus other places and kind of how those two ideas differ and what your, your mission and your purpose, how you identify that within those two kind of parameters. Yeah, that's such a, gr a great question. Thank you for asking about that. Um, I just wanted to highlight the fact that sometimes when we think about charity, when we think about philanthropy, when we think about helping others, we kind of begin to look at those people as um, other with a capital O, right? So we forget the fact that, that there's this this common humanity and that in a community, in a healthy community, we help one another. That's just one of the things that we do, right? But when we, when we start to look at it through the lens of charity, we feel as if there has to be 
someone who's superior, someone who's above someone else. But when we think about radical care, what I want us to remember is that we sit next to one another, we walk alongside one another, and that's how we all get to our destination, to where we wanna be. And so at Freedom Readers, what I invite people to do is just sit next to a child and listen, and let that child lead, and let them tell you about their experiences and their interests and their, their likes and their dislikes and, and begin to develop a sense of who they are as a human being, instead of feeling as if you have to ride in on a white horse and save that child. What that child really needs is a commitment to their development, is an understanding that none of us is perfect. We all need a little bit of help in some area or another. And so just, just be there as one human to another. And that superiority that you mentioned, you say that you kind of it kind of came and hit you like a brick wall when you got to graduate school and you started hearing all these words like low income communities and um, like underserved children and things that you had witnessed throughout your life, but never considered a, a signifier of an other with a capital O. They were just parts of your life and the way that you grew up and the the world that you lived in. And then you got to a private institution who told you that these were these were things that needed to be addressed on maybe a capitalistic level or a societal level that you were used to as just your world. Um, and I was wondering how you felt that that sort of played into what led you to to create Freedom Readers and to start that path to fight back against that systemic. Uh, naming of these things that have kind of taken on a life of their own within our, I guess, government to a certain extent. <laughs> um, like you mentioned, it, it really was a shock to me to see all of these di different labels, all of these buckets where people were being categorized. You know, it just, it didn't make sense and it made me very uncomfortable to be on that side of the conversation because I really didn't want to have that label placed on me, but I understood that what I was reading about in these books was absolutely the experience that I had when I was growing up. And so I, I just wanted to have, to have the opportunity out of my own experience to create something that I thought would better reflect um, what some of the young people in our program had experienced in their own communities. For instance, I draw in on the model for Freedom Readers on some of the things that I experienced in my church when I was growing up. For instance, my um, parents were very adamant that every year around Easter or on Easter, I would make an Easter speech. And for six weeks before Easter, I would be memorizing this long poem, depending on my age, and I would have to recite it for my mom every day when she came home from work. She would say, how you doing? Now say your Easter speech. <laughs> and so it was a tradition in our community. It was a big deal. All my brothers and sisters did it. And it was through that that I got a sense of what it meant to stand in front of a crowd of people and actually say things. Now, if my sister listens to this, I hope that I hope that she doesn't get mad because 
she actually says to me that it was the thing that really ruined her life because she would <laughs> always forget her Easter speech and would always cry. And she said it was awful. But I found it to be rather fun. And so I would stand there and give my Easter speech. And now at Freedom Readers, during the weekly meeting, we invite all of the young people to stand and give a speech. And the, the look in the eyes of their tutors tells me that they are getting this whole radical care concept because you could see they want to jump up out of the, some of them do jump up out of the seat and just stand there next to the kid, willing them to do well, willing them to make that eye contact, willing them to speak expressively, you know? So um, yeah, absolutely. That was part of the reason um, that I wanted to create something that I thought was a little bit different from what schools could offer. And what they could offer and also a, a place for kids who are often marginalized and pushed to the sides, children of color specifically, being able to have role models and see themselves and be empowered and pushed forward by people that look like them is super important as well. And I wanted to read a little something that you had in the book because that's what got me to that topic, but I thought it was very eloquently and beautifully written, which was centering white people's communication style and perspective is a constant betrayal of my own. It pierces the soul, causing, causing the kind of pain that simmers and in time either collapses into itself as exhaustion or bubbles over as rage. Mm -hmm. um, and that was so beautifully written and it, it very much just had me thinking about um, so many of the books that I see now in our store, especially um, that offer a mirror and a place for kids to see themselves. We have a beautiful children's section and it is curated by beautiful people of color mm -hmm. who specifically look for ways that kids can see themselves and connect to these books. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the books that you saw yourself in growing up and books mm -hmm. that you love to have available at Freedom Readers and how you kind of um, choose books like that or what you see in the, the literary world that offers that to the kids you work with. Right, so um, I'm so glad that you, that you found that particular passage and that it resonated with you because I've been thinking about that a lot Be because I've been thinking about the fact that we all have to do a lot of code switching in our lives. Um, we can go into one environment where a certain kind of talking, a certain way of dressing, a certain way of being is accepted. In another environment, it, it just would not be, you know. So code switching is not something that is foreign to any of us, and especially not me. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized what this code switching was doing to me as a human, human being and how the streets are often one way, right? how some people have to do a lot of changing and um, a lot of morphing to be accepted and other people don't necessarily have to do as much of that. Um, but anyway, that being said, I'll talk to you a little bit about the books that were shared with me when I was growing up. So I grew up in the, in the 70s. And so my dad was very adamant about surrounding me with books. So we read a lot of Berenstain Bears. Mm -hmm. We read a lot of Dr. Seuss. 
we we read a lot of books that rhymed and had sounded like songs. You know, there was a book called um, "There's a Monster at the End of This Book," that uh, was a Sesame Street book with the blue furry monster Grover in it that just <laughs> tickled me every time my daddy read it. Read it, I wanted him to read it again. Like I would. <laughs> to stay up all night looking at this book because it was so funny and so interesting. Um, so I think that the books that were most accessible to him at the time, the children's books, didn't necessarily have people of color in them. But at the same time, I had Ebony Magazine, I had Jet Magazine, I had all of these books in our homes that uh, talked to me about the Black experience, about Black excellence about, you know, just different stories where I could see myself. So that's why I'm super excited to be able to share with the young people at Freedom Readers books that really uh, showcase beautiful Black faces. I can remember the first time I read the book, Please Baby Please, which is a Spike Lee and Tanya Lewis Lee book to my own personal children. And um, we read it so many times that I tell you, I have memorized the book. My kids memorize the book. Go back to bed, please, baby, baby, please. And these big round curls on her little head, if you've never seen this. Um, the illustrators are fantastic. They just are able to jump in and, and just bring the experience to life. And I'm so excited that there are more of these books now available for these young people. And I feel as if they tend to gravitate at our program a little bit more towards the books that really reflect who they are and help them to feel comfortable in their own skin. And they, they can gravitate to them, but it also requires you to find them, which is another thing you sort of talked about in, um, in two parts of the, in the book. One is uh, being a student of history and mm -hmm. having to, uh, to uncover history for yourself because our society only tells a partial history and a right. false history. Um, and so having to seek these things out for yourself and then also leading into that, it you are required to be a student of history and then in within Freedom Readers, um, you're sort of, let's see, it was like five parts of your program um, which you mentioned a little bit before was the receiving and the listening, but mm -hmm. taking that information that you have learned yourself as a student of history, and then what you've learned from the students and the children that you're interacting with and taking time to get to know, to find mm -hmm. things that they want and that yeah. they are interested in. And so I wanted to just hear a little bit about how you developed that, that program and how you came up with these sort of pinpoints of how to engage these kids that you're working with? Mm -hmm. So the Freedom Readers Program was born in 2010. And uh, we received an invitation to go into one of the area public housing communities and just meet with kids in the community center. And so I took a lot of my friends and people from my church and we kind of gathered together a lot of books that we wanted to share. Because one of the key components of the program has always been sending kids home with brand new books so they can build their home libraries and read when we're not together. And so um, making that connection between the child and the book and also a child and a tutor, an adult who really has an appreciation for the written word 
and an appreciation for the child himself. Uh, those two connections, I think, are extremely important. So we started out having weekly meetings where we would invite no more than 20 young people. So there may be 40 of us in a room together and we would choose a theme for a session. For instance, the theme this summer might be the Olympics. So we would um, we, we brought in a tiki torch one time <laughs> and we played the, uh, the theme from the Olympics and marched around the room a few times because we really want the kids to get the sense that this is school, but not school. We're always striving for a high energy environment that's encouraging, that focuses on the strength of the young person, whatever that might be. So we might watch a video or learn about an Olympiad and then we'll have a snack and we spend 45 minutes just reading together. I asked the tutors to choose a book that might reflect the interest of the young person, even if it's um, above their reading level. And then I asked them to spend time with the young person reading at their reading level so that they can practice the skills that they've learned at school. And the very last part of our meeting is the public speaking, where we ask all of the young people to use, um, we call them scholars when they're with us. They use a template and they stand up and they make speeches and we talk to them about um, voice projection, eye contact, all of those great things. And then we let the kids choose a book that they want to choose and take it home with them every time they meet with us. Because the research tells us that the more books that you have at home, the more likely you are to read them, the more likely you are to be successful at school and graduate. And the last, uh, your last point there in your, your system, your last R word is respond, which the, the first part of that was that reading is a social act, which mm -hmm. I also loved that, that idea. And it had me thinking about how much I love to talk to people about books and reading things and, there are so many, there are so many, way too many. We are so, so uh, lucky to have such an abundance of literature in the world. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you had any either personal or, um, or I guess, uh, part of the program with Freedom Readers, like ideas about ways that you love to share literature and talk about it. Um, like, whether it's in groups, it's been a little different because of the pandemic, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. If you like book clubs or things you do outside of Freedom Readers, but how how do you use uh, reading as a social act? So I'll start talking to you about my personal experience and then I'll tell you about what we do at Freedom Readers. Okay. I think that I'm one of the um, luckiest person people in the world because I am married to a writer. And so <laughs> when I'm reading something that really gets me excited, I'm chasing him down with the book. <laughs> listen, you have to listen to this. I'm going to read this to you out loud. Or we might read the same book together and then set aside time to sit down and talk about it. That is my favorite book club in the whole world. Like I absolutely enjoy doing that. Um, at Freedom Readers, though, we give kids, when we're meeting in person, the opportunity to draw a picture of what they're seeing in their mind as they're reading the book, right? And so they might have a chance to stand up at the end of our meeting and share their picture and talk to everybody in the room about what it was that they saw and perhaps recommend that particular book 
to some of the other scholars in the room so that they can talk about it. Um, because of the pandemic, we've moved some of our work online. So we're doing something that we call the reading lab. So we've partnered with a local college and we have some of the students in a class of young people trying to be teachers connected with the scholars at Freedom Readers. And so they meet weekly, but in between their weekly meetings, they exchange letters in the mail about a book that both of them are reading, right? I and love that. It's fantastic. Like kids love getting mail, right? I know that when my personal children were small, they would they would knock me down to get to the mailbox if they thought they had to mail. <laughs> so um, even the, the, the youngest kids will draw their pictures, put it in the envelope, put a stamp on it. And so they're, they have someone at home talking to them about how to address an envelope, um, you know, and it's just, it's really a special way, I think, to share the excitement that you feel around a book you really love. And I, oh my gosh, I love that so much. And it, it also just shows a, um, it highlights and puts a beautiful glow on your ability to adapt this program in a way that everybody had to adapt so many things. And I think that that is such a wonderful addition to what you've been doing. And I wanted to, <clears throat> to sort of bring ourselves to a close here by asking you how we can continue to adapt. You are doing such incredible work with this organization. And I want to tell our readers and I want to know um, our readers and our listeners, <laughs> um, people who are going to read Forever Free and grab it off our shelves and our listeners as well, how we can continue to adapt and what we can do as individuals to create a, a spider web of empowering the children in our lives and, and the adults too, but especially like I have nieces and nephews and I'm constantly buying them books but what are what are the ways that us individuals can bring our spider webs together to help combat our literacy crisis and mm -hmm. to continue to empower the children in our lives to love books and to read and to share and use reading as a social act? Mm. Well, Natalie, first I have to say that it's crazy that 45 minutes has gone by already. Like I've <laughs> just been sitting together and, and talking. You are so good at what you do. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Absolutely. So um, we, I hope that a lot of people are inspired to really uh, help move this agenda forward because it feels like it's something that is just obvious. Kids need to learn how to read, right? Yeah. But I just... I feel like we also need to be in the streets rioting over the fact that our most vulnerable children are not getting the kinds of access to this beautiful, magical transformation that can take place in their lives once they really establish a love for reading and a reading habit. Yeah. So there are a couple of resources that I reference in the book. Um, one of them is our interest inventory. And so, like you said earlier, you have young people in your life that you're buying books for. Take a couple of minutes and sit with them and record some of their answers to these questions like, what's your favorite movie right now? What's your favorite song? Who are you listening to? What do you like to do in your spare time? 
What I love about the interest inventory is that I could give it to a kid at the beginning of an academic year and then give it again at the end of an academic year. And I love to compare the responses because they've totally and completely changed, right? Yeah. Yeah. So kids are, are just hungry for that opportunity to express themselves and to tell you about their preferences and their reading profile. So take the time to sit with them and just really absorb that particular information and keep track of where they're going in their reading lives and show that to them. This is the journey that you've taken. This is the number of pages that you've read. This, this is the number of books that you like. You might have, you really gravitate toward mysteries. I want you to read some of these poems over here and see what you what you feel about them. You know, I just I think it's important for us to um, meet together in our libraries and our churches and our community centers, share books with one another, and just have the kinds of conversations that really make us feel more human. I think those are the things that get us through tough times. They definitely do. And I have so many friends who are also teachers or working on getting their teaching credential. And I'm so excited to give them a copy of this book so that they can especially use these resources in the back. I loved the reading inventory. I might have to send it to my nieces and nephews in the mail so they get mail. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for the care that was put into this book and the story that you told and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tracy. Um, again, Tracy Swinton Bailey is the author of Forever Free, and she was chatting with me today about her new book. You can order your very own copy at skylightbooks.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com, and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.